All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, Angela's brought to us a reading this morning, but I need to go a little bit back before we can move up to where we are in this particular reading. We've been following the, the journey of David, and we've seen him anointed to be king by Samuel, and he gets persecuted by King Saul. And all sorts of things happen to him, to David, in the, in the, in the process of that. And King Saul's now been, been killed. And the whole nation of Israel is actually in a time of severe crisis. Saul, the old king, has been killed by the Philistines in battle. His uh, three eldest sons were also killed with him. And so the kingdom is now in disarray. And after Saul's death, David returns from exile. He goes to the city of Hebron. And when he arrives there... He's crowned king of the people of Judah. So one of the tribes of Israel crowned him to be king. He's crowned king of the south. But all the north, they're not following him yet. So it appears that there's a change of dynasty that's about to take place. But a little to the north, one of Saul's sons, a man by the name of Ishbosheth, he survived. And Abner, who was the king of King Saul, who was, who was the uh, commander of King Saul's army, he quickly proclaims Ishbosheth to be the king of Israel. So that sets the scene now for a brutal civil war to take place. And it prevents David from seeing the, the immediate fulfillment of God's promise to make him king over all Israel. So we have the background now for this passage which we've got to today. The road, the road to the throne for David was, was really a rocky road. It was difficult. It wound through some, some tragic and dark days. David was scorned, he was hated, he was vilified by King Saul. He'd been hunted, hounded, harassed. But eventually, David ended up right where the Lord had promised him he would be. He ended up being king over all Israel. Now, as I read and study the, the events of, of David's life and, and his, his rise to power over Israel, I can see some parallels between his life and your life and mine. There's some fantastic parallels that we can have a look at. In a moment, you'll, you'll see that, that when David was crowned king of Judah, then comes a time, there's a space, there's all sorts of hassles that happen, and then he's crowned finally king over the whole of Israel. So there are problems, there are trials that fall across his pathway. And there's some interesting points, significant places, where the people come to. And they're the same kind of points and places that we have in our own spiritual journey. 
From the time we are saved until the moment when we reach that place of absolute surrender to Jesus and He's crowned King of our hearts, we face the same kinds of journeys that the nation of Israel was on as well. And I want to look at those today. So I want to look at the road to the throne. So I want you to move back a couple of chapters in, 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 in 2 Samuel. If you might open your Bible to 2 Samuel, chapter 2. Because I want to look about the place of partial submission. This is interesting because the nation was in partial submission to David. Have a look at chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives. And here we've got all those interesting names now. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men with him who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So it's interesting what's happening here. There's a new king that's being crowned, and this is a big day. This is the big day for David. Now the coronation is going to happen for him. And it's the moment that he's been waiting for since he was a teenager. He's accepted, he's adored, he's anointed by his people. He's crowned king by the people of Judah. I can imagine it must have been a jubilant day for David when this happens. All the years of isolation and exile, they're over. The years of being hunted like a wild animal have ended. The days of waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled in his life, they're surely at hand now. And he must have thought, okay, it's a few more days and the whole nation will come before me. But what happens? He's crowned king in Judah. And at that very moment, after that happens, he's challenged this new king. Have a look at verses 8 to 11 of chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Meanwhile, so he's, a, he's anointed and he's crowned king of, 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 of Judah. But meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king over Gilead, Asheri, Jezreel, and over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. So, no sooner is David crowned king of Judah, than some unexpected events begin to happen. Abner, who's trying to prop up the old kingdom of King Saul, he elevates Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth, to the throne of Israel. Now, all of the people, except for the tribe of Judah, they're bowing down to Ishbosheth and proclaim him king. So, this is the first real division of the nation of Israel that's happening there. And that division is clearly seen. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old. And, and it talks about the fact that he reigned there for only two years. The house of Judah, however, follows David. So, there's there's this one big nation, but it's split with two kings. And they're both attempting to rule the same nation. That's got to be trouble, hasn't it? You can't have two kings over one nation. That doesn't work. Now, what has all got that got to do with us? Now, here we are sitting at Doyleson. What's that mean for us? Well, I can see the parallel between these events and what happens in our own lives when we come to Jesus for salvation. You see, when we are saved we actually get a brand new king. His name is Jesus. And he, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? 
He's Lord. So when a person comes to, to Jesus to be saved, they cannot accept him as Savior today and make him Lord later on. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible to, to separate his roles as Savior and his role as Sovereign. In other words, you can't have Jesus as your Savior unless you're willing to make him your King as well. Now, I realize that some people don't like that or believe that, but that doesn't change the fact. It says in the Bible, Jesus is Lord of all. Have a look at Acts chapter 10. Oh, let me just read it for you. Keep your finger in, in 2 Samuel. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. It says this. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling you the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Says so in the New Testament. Very, very clearly. Now, having said that, it's possible for a believer to, to offer Jesus partial submission. We come to him to be saved. We have very good intentions. We want to be saved. We want to go all the way for the Lord. But somewhere along the way, we begin to pull back a little bit. We begin to hold back areas of our lives and control them as we see fit. And we keep back little compartments of our hearts that we reserve for our own use. So instead of laying everything at the feet of Jesus and acknowledging him to be Lord over every you know, square millimeter of your life, we hold back areas, often large areas, where we actually rule. It might be some habit that you refuse to lay down. It might be some person that you refuse to separate from. It might be some activity that you refuse to give up. It might be some command that you refuse to obey. It might be some old grudge that you refuse to forgive. The possibilities are endless, but the results are the same. When we do this, we are guilty of partial submission to the Lord. We want to say to Jesus, you know, I want all that you can give me. I want heaven. I want the get out of hell free card. Thank you very much. I want your best, Jesus, but I won't give you my best in return. How many people are living lives in that kind of a place today? Only a partial rule. When you're in that place, brothers and sisters, you're in a place of very painful struggles. Because the next few chapters of 2 Samuel has to do with this incredible civil war. All these struggles that pl take place, there are painful, painful struggles. And because of this division, the land of Israel has to pay an incredibly high price. The people pay a price on both sides. Their partial submission to God's choice as their king cost them plenty in the form of painful struggles that they're forced to endure. It's a time of terrible warfare. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says this. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So Israel and Judah, they're, they're, they're fighting a bitter war over who's going to rule the other one. And because of this warfare, lives are lost, properties destroyed, families are devastated. People are just ruined as a result of this. But the outcome is inevitable. We are told that David grows stronger and stronger and the house of Saul gets weaker and weaker. It was a foregone conclusion. David and his army were going to win. That's already been determined by Almighty God. The war was waged. 
but it's a futile, futile war in the end. That's the war there. How about the war that's going on in your hearts? Because when we are partially submitted to the Lord, warfare is always the result. From the moment we're saved until the day we leave this world, the house of Saul, which is the old nature, makes war against the house of David, which is the rule of Christ in our hearts. And this warfare is clearly stated in the pages of the Bible. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit was contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Isn't the Bible talking about you and me? That's what, this is not an abstract thing. This is actually what's going on in our hearts. We've all experienced this kind of trauma that this battle causes. It's stated best, I think, by the Apostle Paul, who, who just summarized the human condition so beautifully in uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Listen to what Paul says. He puts it so lovely. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Now, he's a Christian man, right? He's born again. And he's saying, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. But it's sin living in me that does work. By the way, now saying the devil made me do it is no excuse, okay? You're still responsible. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the solution. It's depending on Jesus. That's the key, isn't it? But Paul summarizes the whole situation so beautifully about that. And David, he talks about it in the Psalms as well. He has the same kind of struggle. Now, can you identify with anything that I've just been reading? Yeah? Where can, where can we find the victory over this, in, in this warfare? The only victory is in your total surrender to Jesus. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Brothers and sisters, we need to live by the Spirit. That's the key. Because when the flesh rules, there's always going to be conflict in our souls. But when the Spirit of God rules, there'll be peace and there'll be joy in each of our hearts. So if there's warfare in your soul today, and you're paying a high price as the casualties of the war mount up in your life, the best thing you can do right now is lift up that flag of surrender and say, Lord, I give up. You are Lord. It's no longer me in charge. It has to be you. Acknowledge Jesus as your king. 
And when you do that, then you'll find peace in your heart. Let's go back to 2 Samuel again. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2. Or verses two to well, chapters two to four, we're going to explore a little bit, but let's have a look at, at chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen. Now let me start at, at um, verse fourteen. What's happened here is Abner, the king of Ishbosheth's army or old Saul's army, has now gotten together with Joab, who is who, sorry, the king rather, Abner, who's in charge of Saul's army, gets together with Joab, who's in in in, in charge of David's army, and they're having a little talk. He says, let some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. That's a good idea, he thinks. All right, let them do it, Joab says. So they stood up and they were counted off. Twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head, thrust his dagger into the opponent's side, and they fell down together. Damn. They just killed each other. Verse 17, the battle that day was very fierce. So it didn't stop there. They said, all right, well, that was a draw. Let's have another go. The battle that day was very fierce. And Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. So many men in the first conflict of this war, many men die. Look at verse 18. The three sons of Zeruah were there, Joab, Abishai and Isha and Asahel. Now Asahel was a fleet, as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked him, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner says to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Then Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look at your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back, and he fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. So Asahel might be fleet of foot, but Abner was an old soldier, and he knew every trick. And this bloke's chasing him, getting closer and closer. And what does Abner do? He thrusts his spear backwards, and he goes right through the guts. Oi, what a great book this Bible is. But that was an unnecessary death. Have a look at, at verses uh, 30 and 31. Uh, when Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembling all his men. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. So here we go. 20 of David's men die. 360 of Abner's men die. What happens then is Abner, who's in charge of Saul's old army, gets killed by Joab. He's murdered by Joab, in fact. Then what happens is the, the Israelites, they get a bit frightened. They think, okay, David's army is going to meet us. They're going to beat us. And some of the old army of Saul, there's a couple of guys to get together and they murder Ishbosheth, their current king. They, they murder him in his bed and they cut off his head. And they bring his head to David and say, ah, look, you know, this terrible man, Ishbosheth, we, we killed him on your behalf. And David says, oh, when someone brought to me the news that Saul was killed, I killed him. Now you two blokes who think you've done a, a good thing, you've done a dreadful thing. You've killed an innocent man in his bed and these blokes get killed. So 
You know, there's just murder and mayhem. There's blood and guts everywhere in this whole book. It's horrible. But sadly, when you read this story, none of this had to be. If Israel had bowed down to the will of the Lord and accepted David as their king, all this grief and all this bloodshed could have been avoided. Partial submission cost them plenty. Now, what's that got to do with us sitting here at Doylson today? Well, when we think about the warfare in our own lives and the times when we walked in partial surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, what has been wasted in our lives? Certainly a lot of time has been wasted. People have lost months, years of their lives in the service to God because they refused to bow down in total submission to the King. Testimonies have been wasted. Opportunities have died before your very eyes whilst we wander through this quagmire of partial submission to King Jesus. Some people have allowed the whole of their Christian lives to go by whilst they stubbornly refuse to, the, to, to surrender to the absolute control of Christ in their lives. What a waste. What a tragedy. Won't it be sad to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and find out what could have been in your life or mine? Won't it be a harsh day when we stand up and give an account of all the wasted days, all the wasted opportunities, and all the wasted blessings that could have been yours? Well, thank God, brothers and sisters, we don't have to waste another moment. The entire direction and devotion of your life can be changed in an instant. All that needs to be done is for you to surrender your all to Jesus. Acknowledge Him as your King, your Lord, and your absolute Master. That's what we need to be doing. I've had the blessing this last little while to tidy up my garage. It was a necessary thing. I couldn't move through it very well. I found a bag of cement in the garage. Great, I thought. I've got a new project. That's just what I need. So I picked up this bag of what I thought was powdery cement. It was a rock. <laughs> it had turned solid. The moisture got into it and it just became a useless rock. A lump of rubbish that I put in the bin. This is not what I attended, but it wasn't surrendered to the right purpose. Other things had gotten in. We can become like that for God too, just a useless rock, hard, not good for anything, if we don't surrender to Jesus. So let's not waste our lives. What else is going on there? It's not only a tragic waste, there's also a time of trouble waiting. Because whilst all this warfare and waste is going on, what is David doing? What's King David doing at this time? Well, if you read these chapters, he's actually not doing very much at all. He's mostly passive as all these battles are being fought around about him. He's merely waiting on the moment when everything that God has promised him will be delivered into his hands. So for David, it was a time of patient but troubled waiting. Brothers and sisters, when you were saved by Jesus, by His grace, He saved you for a purpose. Do you believe that? But what was that purpose? He saved us so that we could serve Him and do His will in the world. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has good things for us to be doing. Are we doing them? 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Live a life worthy of the Lord, that you may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. God wants you to be doing good things. He wants you to be understanding more about Him. He wants you to be becoming like Jesus. There are lots of similar verses. Yet whilst we waste our time in partial surrender, what's Jesus doing? He's waiting patiently for the day when we finally get to the end of ourselves and yield ourselves totally to Him and to His will for our lives. And whilst He waits, He speaks to us about our condition. He speaks through that still voice, small voice of the Holy Spirit. It takes a place of quietness to hear it sometimes. He speaks to you through the Word of God, which is inerrant and infallible. He speaks to us through chastisement and through using circumstances to get our life to pay attention to Him. I mean, how many mistakes have you made? And I made. And you go like, not again. Finally, you get to a place and say, I give up. What do you want, God? I got to that place. I asked God, what do you want? A couple of days later, a fellow comes to visit with me. He says, oh, you need to sell your business, go into the ministry. I don't want to know that clearly. Anyway, that's what happened. See, when God does these things, he's trying to show us he has a better way for us to live our lives. But he wants us to yield to him. Then the warfare and the waste will be handled by him. The casualties will diminish in our lives and our lives will take on a brand new meaning. When Jesus is recognized as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in our lives, he establishes a kingdom of peace. You can have peace on the inside. I'm not saying there will be peace, peace on the outside. Life's still going to go on around, around about you. But you can have peace on the inside. You can have love and joy and know God's blessing. Isn't that what we all want? But you only get that when Jesus truly is Lord of your life. Let's move a few chapters on. Move to chapter 5. And this is the place now of, of profound surrender. After two years of struggle and civil war, all the people of Israel come to David. They anointed to be king over the entire land now. This is the third time, by the way, that David's been anointed for this office. Once by Samuel, the second time by the people of Judah, and now by the entire nation. They are finally finished with partial submission. They crown David as king of Israel. And as they do that, they acknowledge three great truths, and they are important to our to an understanding of what it means for us to have Jesus as king of our lives as well. First of all, what do they acknowledge? They acknowledge, number one, a relationship. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. That's interesting. So David, we are your flesh and your blood. So See, he's, they're saying, look, only someone with a family connection is fit to rule over us. Now, one of the first steps of yielding control of your life totally to the rule of King Jesus is to recognize that you have a connection to him. Jesus is qualified to be our king. Why? Because of a blood relationship. He shed his blood on the cross for you and for me. He did that to redeem us, to pay a penalty for our sins. So when we come to him to be saved, we become connected to Jesus by his blood. 
Now, most of us came to, to Jesus to get that uh, I want to get out of sin trouble card. But a genuine salvation experience is also a genuine desire to repent, to turn from your old lifestyle and to serve Jesus as your Lord. In other words, a person who comes to Jesus to be for salvation also understands they're saying goodbye to the old life and they're saying hello to a brand new life of serving Jesus and submitting to him. You can't have Jesus as your saviour if you're unwilling to have him as your Lord as well. It's impossible to hold the Lord on one hand to hold on to the Lord on with one hand and cling to the, wor to the world with the other. What does Jesus say? You, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and things. It's one or the other. Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. All or nothing. That's the way it works. So there was a relationship there. But there was also here an acknowledgement of an incredible responsibility. Have a look at chapter 5, the second verse. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on our military campaigns. That's interesting. What's happening here is that Israel is remembering all the heroic deeds of David. They remember the power and the victory that God gave to Israel when he was leading their armies. They remember that all that David's done for the nation, they realize they have a responsibility now to bow before him. He's the one who led them to victory. They have a responsibility now to bow to him as their victorious leader. Bring that back to our level again. If we just stop and think for a moment what Jesus has done for us, we immediately see we have a responsibility to him. The very fact that he should die for us and save us from our sins and from an eternity in hell is cause enough for us to bow down before him in humble surrender to his lordship over our lives. If we acknowledge the fact that he saved us, we're also admitting the truth that we owe him our lives. You are bought with a price. The blood of Jesus is the price. You are bought. That means you don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. And the very least we can do is surrender to him as our Lord and King. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So often we think of worship times as, as you know, the singing we do at church. That's not it. The real spiritual worship is offering yourself to God. So they acknowledged a relationship through the blood of a blood relationship. They acknowledged their responsibility. They also acknowledge an incredible revelation. Let's go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 2 again. The second part of the verse says, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So they are verbalizing now their understanding of the fact that David was king of Israel by the will of God. They seem to grasp this truth now. And they bow to David as their king. And as they do that, they're also bowing to the will of God. Let's bring it back to us for a moment. Because it's the same with our walk with Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Not because I say so. This is a revelation from Scripture. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 says this. 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's Lord and Christ. He's the sovereign and he's the Messiah at the same time. So our duty is to, show, is to bow before him, to acknowledge him to be Lord of all, to do our best to honor him as our Savior, our Lord, our God, and our King. Because remember, you're going to stand before him one day and give an account of your life. Let's have a good account to give. Let me bring this to a conclusion this morning. The road to the throne was a long and hard one for David, but he finally arrived there. He, he's crowned king of all Israel. Imagine the hardships that could have been avoided if they had have bowed before him in the first place, as soon as Saul died. But let's not be too hard on these folks, because I'm probably speaking today to someone who also needs to bow before Jesus, to, to acknowledge him as Lord and King in their lives. Yeah, you think you're surrendered, but you're not totally surrendered to him. You're still, he's still walking that long, hard road to the throne of your heart. And I know we've all got trouble in this area. There are times when I seem to say, you know, Lord, how yeah, about letting me sit on the throne just for a little while? There's a particular situation I want to deal with, and I think I'll deal with that very well. Thank you very much. How many of you do that? I know you do. Well, if you want to open up your order of service today to the, to the middle of the thing, there's a prayer. If, you, if you've gotten to the place where you're going like, you know what, Martin, I think you're right. You're talking to me this morning. I'm, I've had enough of this stuff. It doesn't work. Me being in charge just does not work. I need to have God in charge. Well, there's a prayer there. Let me read it first of all, and then we'll, then we'll see whether it's something you want to pray or not. It's like, it goes like this. It says, God being my witness, I want to enthrone Jesus in my heart and life and declare him to be Lord of all. I want to bow at his feet and yield everything to him. I'm tired of the warfare. I'm tired of the wasted opportunities. I'm tired of making him wait to have what is truly his. I want to bow once and for all and surrender everything to Jesus. I'm his by relationship. I know that he is king by revelation. And I know that I have a responsibility to bow before him and enthrone him in my heart as my Lord and my king. Then it says, Amen. That means, so be it. You agree. Is that a prayer that you'd like to pray today? If so, you might like to pray this prayer with me. Let's pray it as a prayer now. God being my witness, I want to enthrone Jesus in my heart and life and declare him to be Lord of all. I want to bow at his feet and yield everything to him. I'm tired of the warfare. I'm tired of the wasted opportunities. I'm tired of making him wait to have everything what is truly his. I want to bow once and for all and surrender everything to Jesus. I'm his by relationship. I know that he is king by revelation. And I know that I have a responsibility to bow before him and enthrone him as my heart, in my heart as my Lord and my King. Amen. Amen.